0: So, it's 1950 something. Let me give you the day's licks. Over 200 commies cited by Yang Senator. Hundreds are hurt as IRA villains nuke London. And Aussie pillagers band together for bigger robberies. Plus, coming up next in your think tank, a review of which fruit is best to help ape your hunger: bananas or oranges answer grapes they are so miniature they don't even need skin oh yeah the news you go get that somewhere else then
1: Newsbang, the only news source that doesn't need a punchline <clears throat> 1950 1950
0: and the cold war was hotting up like a microwave meal left on ping enter joseph mccarthy a man so paranoid he'd have named himself if he could spell it. The senator pointed his witch-hunting finger at 205 State Department employees, accusing them of being communists. He claimed they'd infiltrated everything from government to universities to even Hollywood.
2: McCarthyism, as it became known, gripped America like a vice-like iron fist of fear. Accusations flew thicker than flies round Stalin's open casket. It was the start of an era where neighbours would inform on neighbours for looking at their dachas funny or sharing an ideology that differed from their own, usually over a game of croquet.
0: The second Red Scare swept through Washington DC like Pol Pot through Cambodia's electoral rolls. Everyone was suspect, except Ronald Reagan who seemed alright. But eventually McCarthy overreached himself when he accused Betty Boop of having red underwear, communist sympathies not lingerie.
2: His career nosedived faster than Brezhnev downstairs without his Zimmer frame. The Supreme Court stepped in and put an end to the madness, along with common sense and sanity, paving way for Richard Nixon to pick up where Joe left off with Watergate. Tetris edition.
1: Lee, 1996.
0: The IRA have brought forward their sale of blowing things up by a whole week, catching shoppers and pigeons alike off guard. The blast, which occurred in London's Docklands area, was heard as far away as Belfast. Eyewitnesses describe carnage reminiscent of when Gary Adams first discovered stubble cream.
2: The 300,000-ton truck bomb left two dead and over a hundred injured, although some were already hurt from watching EastEnders. The Provisional Irish Republican Army, or the lads with Semtex under their coats, are believed to be responsible for the atrocity seeking to bring about an end to British rule in Northern Ireland, or at least a quicker route through customs on their holidays southwards.
3: Mm,
1: 1976. The Australian Defence Force, or ADF
0: as they're known in their underwear, is responsible for defending Australia from all manner of beast and man. With a whopping 890,000 personnel at their disposal, it's no wonder they can barely fit on the ferry to work. Commanded by the Chief of Defence Force, Not to be confused with the Lord High General of Ping-Pong, this lot are so tough they chew nails and spit out screws, and then use them to build a battleship.
2: The Royal Australian Navy, or RAN for short, because they're often caught weeing in public, patrol our shores like crazed seagulls on speedboats. Armed to the gills with sonar equipment stolen from local fishermen and an impressive collection of conch shells, These salty sea dogs have been known to send shivers down even the most hardened pirate's peg leg.
0: Meanwhile, up in the skies above us flies the Royal Australian Air Force. ARAF for short, or because vowels cost extra, these sky jockeys are led by none other than kangarooster Major Dingo McMurray, who once shot down a Kiwi bomber using only his wife's lipstick and some aluminium foil. Their motto? Up yours, and boy do they mean it.
1: News Bang! Unleashing the Hounds of Truth on the Bullshit Brigade. Next, Shakanaka
0: Giles has the forecast.
4: Tomorrow we're in for a bit of a Silmar shake-up, but don't worry, it's just the weather. A chilly 6.6 degrees Celsius. A nod to that infamous 1971 earthquake will greet the San Fernando Valley. It's as if mother nature's having a throwback moment, but don't fret, it's just a gentle reminder of the past. Los Angeles, the city of angels and film stars, will be shrouded in a cloudy veil, much like a diva hiding from the paparazzi. Expect a few drops of rain, Not quite a downpour, but enough to make you feel like you're in a melancholic movie scene. Silmar, the historic suburban neighborhood, will be bathed in a soft drizzle akin to a light sprinkling of stardust. It's as if the city is remembering its past while embracing the present. In summary, a Silmar shiver, a diva's veil and a sprinkling of stardust Bundle up and enjoy the nostalgia. And that's all the weather.
1: 1945.
0: In a dramatic chapter of World War II, Allied aircraft attempted to sink the German destroyer Z33 in Ford Fjord, Norway. Despite their efforts, the ship remained afloat, continuing its duties escorting troop convoys. Tragically, this global conflict resulted in millions of lives lost due to genocides, starvation, massacres, and disease. The aftermath saw Germany, Austria, and Japan occupied by the victorious Allies. In Ford Fjord, Allied aircraft suffered losses during their assault on Z33. The ship was eventually decommissioned before the war's end. To provide further insight into this historical event is our correspondent Brian Bastable,
5: The year is 1945, and as I wade through this war zone, a constant rain of fire and steel, the Germans have brought forth their beast to defend this Ford Fjord. I speak, of course, of the mighty Z-33. This floating fortress has already tasted our iron and spat it back in defiance. The air above trembles with the fury of our engines, but we do not break against its sides like waves upon rock. As I look around me now at my comrades, all brave men who know what they face here today on these icy waters. They know that each wave could be their last and yet they press on without fear or doubt. I'm reminded why we fight this war against evil itself. We will not rest until every last vestige of Nazi power lies broken beneath us. Until then we shall fly into battle again and again until victory is ours. And may God have mercy on us all. Brian Bastable for Newsbang reporting live from the front lines over Ford Fjord. do,
1: 2001.
0: In a shocking turn of events, the USS Greenville, a nuclear-powered attack submarine, collided with the Japanese training vessel Ehima Maru in 2001. The incident claimed the lives of nine individuals on board the ill-fated Ehima Maru. This unfortunate collision unfolded during an emergency surfacing maneuver demonstration for VIP civilian visitors aboard the American submersible. As we delve deeper into this nautical nightmare, Ken Shit will share his insights on the aftermath of this calamitous
6: event. Good evening, degenerates. As we journey back to the dark days of 2001, let's not forget the year that brought us emo haircuts glow sticks and the catastrophic collision of two ships that would leave a nation in mourning. The USS Greenville, a nuclear-powered attack submarine, and the Ehime Maru, a Japanese training vessel, were supposed to coexist peacefully in the vast expanse of the Pacific Ocean. But on this fateful day, a tragic mistake would forever change the course of their destinies. The Greenville Named after the lovely town of Greenville, Tennessee, was performing an emergency surfacing maneuver for a group of VIP civilian visitors. It was supposed to be a spectacle of might and power, a display of American naval prowess. But instead, it turned into a fucking disaster. The Greenville plowed right into the Ehime Maru, sending the ship spiraling into the depths of the ocean. The Maru sank within the blink of an eye, taking nine innocent lives with it. Four high school students, two teachers and three crew members were lost forever. Their futures snuffed out in an instant. The Ehime Prefectural Uwajima Fisheries High School, where the Ehime Maru was operated by, is a place of learning and growth. But on this day, it became a place of mourning and despair. This is Ken Shit reminding you that no matter how powerful we think we are, we're all just a moment away from disaster, and when that moment comes, we're all equally vulnerable. Let's never forget the lives lost on that fateful day, and let's strive to learn from our mistakes. Because in the end, it's not about who's the strongest or the toughest, it's about who can learn to navigate the treacherous waters of life with grace and humility.
1: 1976. The Australian
0: Defence Force, a formidable force of over 89,000 personnel, has been steadfastly defending Australia since 1976. This colossal force comprises the Australian Army, Royal Australian Navy and Royal Australian Air Force. The ADF is helmed by the Chief of Defence Force, who answers to the Minister for Defence. The Royal Australian Navy navigates Australia's maritime frontiers, While the Royal Australian Air Force soars high in aerial warfare, the Governor-General of Australia holds the esteemed title of Commander-in-Chief. Now we turn to Hardiman Pesto for an in-depth look at the Australian Defence Force. Martin, I'm here in Canberra,
7: where there are grave concerns that Australia's armed forces may be getting too big for their boots. I spoke to the Chief of the Defence Force, Admiral Sir Reginald Blimpington, who admitted the Navy now has so many ships they are struggling find names for them all. Names for ships? Is that really the top concern right now? Well, Admiral Blimpington certainly seems to think so. He told me they are resorting to names like HMS this one, HMS the other one. They even have one called HMS help I've run out of names. Fascinating. And what about the Army and Air Force? Are they faring any better? While well, the army has ballooned to over 100,000 personnel thanks to enthusiastic recruitment drives. Unfortunately, they are struggling to find enough uniforms. Many soldiers are resorting to wearing their pyjamas into battle. Their pyjamas? Is Australia under threat of invasion by night raiders? Not at all. The Admiral assured me they are ready to repel any invasion, be it day or night. As long as it's after breakfast time, of course wouldn't want to face the enemy on an empty stomach. And what about the Air Force? Grounded for lack of planes? Oh no, the opposite in fact. Thanks to a typo in a procurement contract, they accidentally ordered ten times more fighter jets than intended. There's now nowhere left to park them all, and suburban streets are filled with
0: jet planes. So let me get this straight. The Navy has too many ships, the Army too many soldiers in their pyjamas... And the Air Force has far too many fighter planes cluttering up suburban streets. You've got it, Martin. Australia's defences have never been stronger. God help us all. Back to the studio. 1825. The year is 1825, and the United States of America has found itself in a peculiar predicament. In the previous year's presidential election, neither candidate could claim victory through the Electoral College. The stage was set for a dramatic turn of events in the House of Representatives where John Quincy Adams would emerge as the unlikely victor in this political chess match. The story continues with CBN's Melody Wintergreen, who has been investigating how such a situation unfolded and what it means for the future of American democracy.
3: The year is 1825 and the hallowed halls of the House of Representatives are abuzz with a political pageant unlike any other. In a twist of electoral entanglement, no presidential hopeful has corralled a majority of the Electoral College's votes, catapulting Congress into the role of kingmaker. Enter John Quincy Adams, son of a founding father and now father to a nation's future, as he stands on the precipice of power in this contingent election extravaganza. The air is thick with anticipation as state delegations huddle, their votes an amalgamated force in this high-stakes game of presidential poker, Whispers of deals and political promissory notes flutter like confetti in the corridors of power. The ghosts of elections past hover, eager to see if Adams will ascend to an office once held by his dear old dad. As the final tallies are etched into the annals of American history, John Quincy Adams emerges victorious, his presidential destiny secured not by public mandate, but by congressional coronation. And so, in an era where horseback was high speed, and candlelight illuminated political strategy, America witnesses the birth of a presidency that began not in a ballot box but within the storied walls where representatives reign supreme. (laughs) Thus concludes our tale from Capitol Hill where John Quincy Adams grasps the reins handed to him by the very hands that govern the governed. This is Melody Wintergreen witnessing history in the making at the contingent election that crowned a commander-in-chief.
1: news bang, the truth will out eventually. And now, Ryderboff is
0: about to take us back in time to the year 2020, when Japanese figure skater Yuzuru Hanyu achieved a historical pirouette by winning the Four Continents Championships. Let's listen.
8: And now, let's skate back in time to the year 2020. The ice was more than just frozen water in Seoul, South Korea. It was the stage for a historical pirouette that would leave the world dazzled. Japanese figure skater Yuzuru Hanyu, with the grace of a swan and the precision of a Swiss watchmaker, became the only man to complete what they're calling a super slam by winning the four continents championships. User there on the ice. Look at him go. He's spinning like a well-dressed tornado. The crowd is silent, you could hear a pin drop, or even my career if it fell from where it used to be. And he lands another quadruple jump. I haven't seen such flawless execution since my Aunt Mabel's Sunday roast. Hanyu, known as Ice Prince, glided into history books smoother than butter on hot crumpets. A two-time Olympic champion, and now holder of this illustrious Super Slam title, it's enough to make one's head spin without setting foot on ice. Speaking of spins, reminds me of my own brush with icy fame when I attempted to recreate Torville and Dean's Bolero on my local rink. Let's just say I ended up more bruised than an overripe banana and with less dignity than a cat caught barking. But back to Hanyu. His victory was akin to catching lightning in a bottle or finding that your blind date looks like calamity Prenderville under dim restaurant lighting. Now let's not forget those other competitions that make up this Grand Slam, much like ingredients in an award-winning fruitcake, World Championships, Grand Prix Final, European Championships, all dominated by Hanyu as if he were playing chess while others played checkers. It was truly a sight for sore eyes, which incidentally I had after watching 12 hours straight of curling during last winter's sports marathon coverage. A sport so gripping that you find yourself cheering for stones sliding across ice as if they were gladiators entering battle. That wraps up our trip down memory lane, or should I say our glide over memory ice. Stay tuned for more sporting tales that are sure to knock your socks off, assuming you're not already wearing skates.
0: Traffic mayhem and avian selfies take center stage today, as Polybeat brings us the latest from the nation's roads. Prepare for a wild ride with colliding trains in Germany, sheep sit ins, and even Stonehenge on the move.
9: Buckle up road warriors. We're hurtling back to the fateful year of 2016. Commuters on the Meridian line in Bad Eibling, Germany, beware, two trains have collided in a dramatic display of brake-free enthusiasm. 12 lives lost and 85 injured. This isn't your average Friday the 9th of February. Bad Eibling's spa town reputation may take a hit, but perhaps the scalding hot tubs will provide some relief. Meanwhile, the M25 is playing host to a flock of misguided flamingos. Traffic's moving at a snail's pace and motorists are taking advantage of the delay to snap some feathery selfies. And finally, on the A303, Stonehenge has decided to take a wander. Traffic's backed up for miles as the ancient stones make their way towards Salisbury. Archaeologists are baffled, but drivers are finding the spectacle quite mesmerizing. So, keep your eyes peeled, your wits about you, and remember, it's not every day you see a traffic jam caused by a wandering monument. This is Polly Beep signing off with a flourish. Keep your hands at ten to two. Lee,
1: 1996. Calamity Prenderville
0: reports on the creation of the radioactive element, Copernixium, and its potential to revolutionise nuclear power in Britain. (laughs)
10: Welcome back to Newsbang, where we're celebrating British innovation. Today, we're time-travelling to 1996, when the GSI Helmholtz Centre for Heavy Ion Research in Darmstadt, Germany, unveiled a groundbreaking discovery. They created an element so radioactive, it could power a rocket to Mars or give you a wicked sunburn. That's right, folks, it's Copernicium.
7: Copernicium is a synthetic element with symbol CN and atomic number 112. It's so unstable that if you were to hold it, your hand would disintegrate faster than a jaffa cake in a microwave. But don't worry, they named it after Nicholas Copernicus, the astronomer who discovered the Earth revolves around the Sun. So it's not all bad news. The most stable isotope of Copernicium, Copernicium 285, has a half-life of about 30 seconds. That's right, you have less time to admire this element than it takes to boil an egg. But hey, at least you can say you've seen it before it vanishes into thin air.
10: The creation of Copernicium is a testament to British ingenuity. Who needs a cup of tea when you can create an element that could power the national grid? And let's not forget, the radioactive properties of this element could revolutionise nuclear power in Britain. Imagine having a nuclear reactor powered by copernicium. The radiation would be so intense that every cat in the country would develop superpowers. So there you have it, another British triumph in the world of science and technology. Keep those elements coming. We can't wait to see what you come up with next. This is Calamity Prenderville from Newsbang, signing off.
1: Oublin Newsbang, a reality check for the reality show. 1964.
0: In a whirlwind of unparalleled fervour, the Beatles, a fabulous English quartet, have set the world alight with their melodious tunes and captivating charm. Their electrifying performances on The Ed Sullivan Show have ignited a feverish craze that has engulfed America and beyond. This British invasion, as it has been christened, is no mere ripple in the cultural pond. It is a tidal wave of influence that has swept across the Atlantic Ocean, leaving in its wake an insatiable hunger for more of this British pop and rock phenomenon. Now, to discuss the impact of this cultural revolution on American shores is our very own Smithsonian Moss.
3: Now, at this point of the evening, we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us.
11: Wahoo, my beautiful beatniks and mod monsters. It's Smithsonian Moss, your high priestess of pop culture, coming at you live and in living colour. Tonight, we're throwing it back to the swingin' 60s when four mop-topped lads from Liverpool rode the wave of Beatlemania straight into the squishy hearts of American teens. Picture it. 1964, the year when the air was thick with the scent of teen spirit and Aquanet hairspray. The Beatles, those cheeky chaps, invaded the airwaves of The Ed Sullivan Show, and Bam. America's musical landscape got hit harder than a drum solo by Ringo Starr himself. Let's talk about the hysteria, folks. Girls were fainting, boys were jealous, and parents were just plain confused. It was like a mass outbreak of the cooties, but instead of itching, you got an insatiable urge to twist and shout. And can we talk about the suits? The Beatles were sharper than attack with their matching outfits and haircuts that looked like they were done by a bowl and a pair of dull scissors. But who cared? They had that je ne sais quoi, or as we say in English, that I-want-to-hold-your-hand vibe. The British invasion was more than just a fad. It was a full-blown cultural exchange program with a backbeat. The Fab Four didn't just bring their catchy tunes across the pond. They brought the whole bloody British Empire with them. Suddenly, American kids were saying cheerio and sipping tea, all while trying to decode what the hell I am the walruses meant. So let's raise our glasses to the Beatles, the lads who made it cool to be British, made screaming in public socially acceptable, and proved that all you need is love and a catchy hook. This has been Smithsonian Moss, and remember, in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make.
1: News bang, a stark choice between fact and fiction.
0: And now it's time for a look at tomorrow's headlines. The Times, Spanish Nationalists Complete Catalonia Conquest. There's a map there of Spain. The Independent, Union Navy Wipes Out Confederate Mosquito Fleet. There's a picture there of a mosquito. The Daily Mail, Oxford students and townsfolk riot over tavern dispute. There's a photo there of a broken bottle. And finally, the mirror tuberculosis outbreak forces hospital closure. There's a chart there of lung capacity. That's all from us this evening. Good night.
1: Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night.